Welcome to the Saturday Frights Podcast. I am the projectionist, your co-host for this radio program. Now, come join your host, Vic Sage, as we enter the vault to once again discuss retro horror films and television programs. <laughs> God, Taman Ra, you are Yusuf Bey, son of Abdel Malik. I am your father. It would appear that the patrons of the haunted drive-in are enjoying our mummy double feature this evening, Victor. Hard to ever go wrong with the Universal Monsters projectionist. Although, I have to ask, why you decided to go with 1942's The Mummy's Tomb for the first movie, and now 1944's The Mummy's Ghost? Don't you think the audience would be more receptive to 1932's The Mummy, and then say, the 1999 remake? When you are competent enough to be a true projectionist, then you may program the pictures as you see fit, Serge. Besides, you know how I feel about that particular remake. Director Steven Summers was too wrapped up in creating an action picture with horror elements when he should have remained true to the very point of the 1932 film of a love lost and found over the ages. And you know that we have to agree to disagree on this subject matter, my friend. I vividly remember how much I enjoyed the 1999 remake. And while I agree with you that it is an action picture, I think you are downplaying the horror in the film. From Arnold Vosloo's Imhotep hunting down, the canopic jars, and those adventurers who stole them, plus those flesh-eating beetles, and of course, the small army of mummies that attack Brendan Fraser's Rick O'Connell and Rachel Weiss's Evelyn Carnahan. And when you get down to it, all Imhotep really wants is to bring back his lost love, right? That sounds like that Summers was paying homage to the original mummy to me, updating it enough that the audiences of the day would find it interesting. As you say, Victor, we must agree to disagree. Were you aware, however, that Universal Pictures not only initially wanted a darker take, but began talks of a remake for The Mummy in 1992? Actually, I did know that, thanks to the postmortem with Mick Garris podcast, actually. As I understand it, Universal wanted to jumpstart a new horror franchise in the early 90s, but the main goal was to keep it as low budget as possible. I believe I've read they wanted the film to be around $10 million. The really cool thing about the first proposed project was that it was co-written by both Clive Barker and Mick Garris. 
and would have been an extremely different take on the iconic Universal Monster. In fact, in a Fangoria interview with Clive Barker in 2015 about the different approach to the character, think The Crying Game, Barker commented, quote, We love the idea. So much so that we put the mystery surrounding this ambiguous creature and her extraordinary secret at the heart of our story. Our creation was not welcomed at Universal, needless to say. The script, which Mick had labored hard over, working in a diminutive hotel room in London, which I visited daily for story conferences, was eviscerated by the script readers and our producers. How could we expect to get away with something so weird? Nobody in America, we were told, would accept such a ridiculous premise. End quote. The studio heads. Bah! A dreamer is one who can only find his way by moonlight. And his punishment is that he sees the dawn before the rest of the world. I've heard that quote before, my friend. Though I can't quite place it. Oscar Wilde, dear boy. Oh! That quote might have been used in one of James Robinson's Starman issues, when the character of the Shade is talking about palling around with Wilde. Anyway, back on the subject of the mummy projectionist, I've read that it was none other than Joe Dante who was next approached by Universal Pictures. And as I understand it, his version of the mummy would have been set in modern times, but still remain true to the spirit of the 1932 version of the film. With what we've discussed of Joe Dante in the Howling Radio broadcast, as well is the 1985 episode of the Twilight Zone revival entitled The Shadow Man. That does not surprise me in the least, Victor. Sadly, Universal appears to have balked at the issue of how much the film would have cost, and passed on Dante's version of The Mummy. A double shame, as the original script by Alan Ormsby had been rewritten by John Sayles. I've even heard that Steven Spielberg was blown away by the screenplay. I also found online that Joe Dante was intending to cast Daniel Day-Lewis in the title role. Once more, those in charge of the purse strings managed to wreck what could have been cinematic magic, yes? Well, after Dante departed the project, do you know who was next in line to be approached to take a crack at the mummy? Do not insult me, sir. Of course I do. The next filmmaker that Universal Pictures tasked to create a franchise from The Mummy was George A. Romero. You are totally right, man. I've read online that Romero felt that his idea about rebooting the character was considered to be too dark by the studio. It almost sounds like at this point in time, the studio was just against the idea of making a mummy film. You know what I mean? Certainly. And after George A. Romero, the studio approached Wes Craven and even Mick Garris once again. Look, Victor, the recording light is lit on the control panel. It is time once again to regale our dear listeners with an exciting new Saturday Frights radio broadcast. Voted by the readership of the cauldron to most likely cause you to slip into slumber in a futile attempt avoid the yammering of Victor Sage. <laughs> wow, 
you just really make me look forward to every single time we get a chance to record, my friend. Listeners, besides the cheap shots from my co-host, we most assuredly thank you for joining us for a new episode of the show. The Projectionist and I were just talking about how many times The Mummy had almost been rebooted before the much-loved Stephen Sommers version from 1999. That dear boy is a matter of opinion. The reason being is not only are we showing a double feature of the classic Universal Monster films this evening at the Haunted Drive-In, but the subject of our episode has to do with a mummy. This is a request from a loyal listener of the show, John Powers. He wanted us to discuss the fourth episode of Season 1 of Amazing Stories, entitled Mummy Daddy. Now, we have touched upon the origins of Amazing Stories in past episodes. In fact, we tackled both Remote Control Man and Mirror Mirror on the podcast before. A quick recap, though, is in order. The title of the series is Allow Me, Victor. Amazing Stories uses the same name of the science fiction magazine that was produced by Hugo Gunsback, beginning in April of 1926. The first issue featured tales from Jules Verne, Edgar Allan Poe, in addition to H.G. Wells. The magazine, as I have been made aware, continued to be produced, although not always on a regular schedule, until the year 2019. 93 years is not too shabby of a run if I do say so myself. (laughs) Yes? I'm sure we haven't seen the last of the magazine either, my friend. Amazing Stories only lasted for two seasons, as it was not a ratings darling when it originally aired. Although, having said that, it did manage to earn 12 Emmy Award nominations, taking home five wins. Of course, with the talent that Steven Spielberg, Kathleen Kennedy, and Frank Marshall as executive producers were able to attract to the project, it's easy to see why they were getting nominated. Besides Spielberg directing a handful of episodes, you had the likes of Martin Scorsese, Joe Dante, Clint Eastwood, Tom Holland, Robert Zemeckis, and Toby Hooper, to name just a few. And that doesn't even include the fact that Mick Garris was story editor for the series, or the incredible cast of talented people in front of and behind the camera. When Amazing Stories premiered on NBC on the evening of September 29th of 1985, it was part of a return of sorts to the glory days of anthology television, as it was followed that night by the new Alfred Hitchcock Presents, which we should point out that all of this was just two days after CBS premiered their Twilight Zone reboot series. When all was said and done, it would be the reboot of Alfred Hitchcock Presents that would last the longest, with four seasons in total. Although, it did jump to the USA Network for its third and fourth seasons. As with all anthology series, there are extremely solid episodes and those that aren't quite so memorable. 
The stories told in the original Amazing Stories series ranged from horror, science fiction, fantasy, and comedy. The last one being the hardest genre, in my opinion, to land. Thankfully, Mummy Daddy succeeds with flying colors. Agreed! I felt a chuckle or two begin to well up within me as we watched the television episode. Before I choked them out, of course. <laughs> the odd thing, listeners, is while my family did watch Amazing Stories when it originally aired, I had somehow missed Mummy Daddy. Although, I couldn't tell you why. So, until the projectionist screened the episode in the Vault Auditorium a couple days ago, I had never had the pleasure of seeing it before. Listeners, you might be interested to know there is a remarkable number of character actors featured in Mummy Daddy. Plus some great nods to some memorable 80s horror films. More on that though when we begin the synopsis for the episode. The teleplay for Mummy Daddy was written by Earl Pomerantz, who, by the way, wrote for such TV shows as The Mary Tyler Moore Show, The Bob Newhart Show, Taxi, as well as Major Dad. Although the teleplay was based on a story idea by Steven Spielberg. The original shooting script is actually being offered on eBay at this time of recording, assuming it's legit. And you might be interested to know that the original title for the episode was Mummy Dearest. Mummy Daddy was directed by William Deere, who, I kid you not, if you look him up online, he looks like he could be Anthony Quinn's brother. But he also directed the likes of Michael Nesmith's Elephant Parts, Harry and the Hendersons, If Looks Could Kill, the pilot episode for Covington Cross, and Angels in the Outfield, to name just a few. The episode stars Tom Harrison as Harold, an actor who's playing a mummy in a film production set in a bayou. Harrison only has eight acting credits to his name, his first being in the 1979 film The Bronte Sisters, with his last credit being in 1998 in a movie called Welcome to Hollywood. I can at least tell you that the actor playing the director in this episode is none other than Bronson Pinchot of The Langoliers and Perfect Strangers fame. Actually, it would be just one year after Mummy Daddy aired that he would begin to play Cousin Balky in that popular ABC series. Perhaps, dear boy, this is the perfect time to pause before you wind up for one of your agonizing synopsis. There's going to come a day, Projectionist. <sighs> I know you have some audio goodies queued up for the listeners, though, so we will pause here before diving into the full synopsis for Mummy Daddy. If you've not seen the episode for yourself, pause the podcast and check it out. In fact, I believe you can watch it totally for free online on NBC.com right this minute. Now then, Projectionist, what do you have for the listeners? Something infinitely more pleasing than your mewling sage. Hi, I'm Chili Dilly, the personality pickle. Packed in a jar for the freshest flavor. Served cold in a sack for you to savor. So dainty to eat, no muss, no fuss. An ideal snack for all of us. Crisp, tender, and tasty with a bit of spice. Buy one now. Taste how nice. Snack bar clerks will knock themselves silly. Speeding your order for a real chili dilly. Death is on its way. Beware the hunchback of the morgue. A freak of nature. A slave with a body broken from torture. A 
maniac with crimes beyond your wildest terrors. What kind of underground horror chamber is he building? What kind of monster is he creating? Why does he need more and more flesh? Who is he? The hunchback of the mole. As Mummy Daddy begins, we find that a mummy is slowly waging through a swampy bayou. Close behind it, though, is an angry mob carrying torches and guns, crying for its destruction. This is not something the mummy is going to accept without a fight, though. Turning to face the mob, arms outstretched and growling its challenge at its pursuers. Before the director, played by Bronson Pinchot, yells cut. Due to the lack of fog the scene requires, it is merely a movie set, you see. They are apparently filming on location. I assume it's supposed to be Louisiana. This is our introduction to Harold, who can barely move thanks to his tight costuming and the fact he has splints attached to his legs to allow him to make jerky movements while he's walking. I believe, dear listeners, this was added to explain why poor Harold doesn't just run for his life when he encounters trouble in town later in the episode. That is a very good point, and I think you're totally right about it. Since the production is having to take an hour break for lunch while Harold hobbles to his seat, the director explains that it would save time if he just stayed in the costume itself. It would take far too long for them to remove the makeup and then have to reapply it. A nice way to set up all the trouble that Harold is going to find himself in, as you mentioned Projectionist, a little later on in the episode. We should point out that the mummy makeup is quite nice. This isn't just a bunch of bandages. The prosthetics that the actor is wearing allows for minimal movement of his jaw, so speaking is practically impossible. Everything comes out in kind of a mumble. While killing a little time in his trailer, we learn from the director that Harold's wife is due to give birth to their first child in two weeks. So the actor is in a hurry to complete the film. That way he and his wife can return home. The director makes a point of mentioning that they were a long way from New York, but the Bayou is aiding in making his motion pictures something special. Perhaps. Although he reveals in a conspiratorial tone that the true reason they are in the swamp and not a studio is that the story they are attempting to bring to the big screen is true. Legend has it, years ago, around the turn of the century, there was this traveling gypsy carnival, and they had this real mummy, an evil Egyptian king named Ra Amin Ka. They used to charge a nickel a look, big box office in those days. Anyway, one night, they're doing this show, and the thing comes to life. And the few who made it out alive swore to their dying day that it still roams the bogs. These very bogs we're working in. 
Harold's teeth, or those prosthetic mummy teeth, begin to chatter as the two look out from his trailer into the misty bayou beyond. Not out of fear though, as it turns out, but because he can't contain his laughter. And while Tom Harrison's acting in Mummy Daddy is largely pantomime, he's not exactly silent. It's like we mentioned just a moment ago, he kind of mumbles. Although we should point out that that mummy makeup was handled by Greg Canham, who also did work on the likes of The Howling, A Nightmare on Elm Street 3, The Dream Warriors, and The Lost Boys. I would say that it personally comes in just a tad short of the awesome work by Shane Mahan of the Stan Winston Studios for The Mummy featured in 1987's The Monster Squad. I find that surprising, dear boy. I must disagree with you and say that I much prefer The Mummy featured in this amazing stories episode over... The one featured in the Monster Squad, the milky white eyes, and the ravaged face and bandages that Harold wears is quite captivating. Plus the fact, of course, that in reality there are two. Stop right there, projectionist. You're getting ahead of yourself as usual. Any thoughts of the validity of the legend of Ra Amon Ka are forgotten when a PA barges into Harold's trailer to inform him that his wife has unexpectedly gone into labor. The actor bolts, well, as best as he is able with those stints altering his walking to his vehicle. It would take almost half an hour for them to remove his makeup, and the director even offers to call for a car to take him to the nearby hospital to be with his wife. But Harold isn't exactly thinking straight. Which would explain why after tearing off down the road, the actor failed to check how much gas he had left in his vehicle. Yes? Absolutely, my friend. Obviously, a lot of the humor for Mummy Daddy is situational. As we've already mentioned, you can imagine with Harold's looks, as he's still in costume, how he moves and speaks that it would frighten the average person if they bumped into him in the middle of the night. Say like Ezra, the gas station attendant, who just so happens to be watching Lon Chaney Jr. in 1940's The Mummy's Hand, paying no mind to the gesturing mummy outside his own station, fueling up his vehicle. <laughs> Well, it would seem that Ezra, who, by the way, is played by the legendary Tracy Walter of Repo Man, Conan the Destroyer, and 1989's Batman fame, where he played Bob the Goon. As I was saying, though, it looks like Ezra is a pretty big horror fan, as from the open door of his station, we see that posters for Halloween 3, Terror in the Isles, Nightmares, and 1982's oft-overlooked cult film, Death Valley are hanging up in his office. Having caught the exciting part of the mummy's hand, he turns his full attention to his late-night arrival, and promptly screams in terror at the fact a mummy is waving back at him. I suppose the only upside to all of this is that Harold, when he started pumping the gas, realized, since that he's kind of stuck in his costume, that he failed to bring his wallet. So he kind of jumps into his vehicle and hightails it out of there without paying. Something that the actor chuckles about as he's driving off, 
showing a distinct lack of moral character. Yeah, I definitely think that the takeaway for Mummy Daddy is that everything that occurs is kind of on Harold's shoulders. We of course can sympathize with the fact that he wants to be with his wife as soon as possible, but if he had just waited a few minutes for the director to get a car brought around, none of the events of the episode would have taken place. You see, even though Harold has a full tank of gas, he is going so fast that he almost gets in a wreck as he reaches a fork in the road. There's a strong wind blowing the sign pointing to the nearby town of Gridley just all over the place, so he doesn't know which is the correct path to take to get to the hospital. A stressful situation to be sure. Luckily for Harold, there is a truck fast approaching, driven by Blade Runner and the horror show's late and great Brian James, who plays Willie Joe. Along with the good old boy is Jubal, portrayed by veteran character actor Larry Hankin, recently seen in both Breaking Bad as well as HBO's Barry. As you might be able to imagine, dear listeners, in the middle of the night, while driving, and most assuredly, after having had a few, as they say, seeing a mummy walking down the road, waving its arms at you, is less than a welcoming sight. To put it mildly projectionist, Willie Joe and Jubal are scared out of their wits and end up crashing the truck into Harold's car. The actor doesn't have much time to check on the two. He was barely able to get out of the way of the crash himself, but Willie Joe quickly grabs his shotgun and shoots at the poor man, although resulting in just blasting a hole through his own truck. Harold runs, as best as he can, further into the bayou in an attempt to escape. While Harold is presumably trying to find his way, either back to the film set or to reach the hospital, an emergency town meeting is held, with Willie Joe, Jubal, and Ezra offering some wildly exaggerated stories of their encounters with the mummy. The trio are not mocked by their fellow citizens. However, all in attendance blanch at the thought that Ra Amon Ka walks amongst them again. It's Willie Joe, though, that is the one that whips up the townspeople into a mob, rallying them to get their guns and hunt down this mummy. Harold, seeing that the townsfolk are searching for him, hooting and hollering in their trucks as they drive by, keeps heading further into the swamp, where he comes across a ramshackle cabin deep in the bayou, where within is an elderly blind man, who in a scene similar to 1935's Bride of Frankenstein offers him a moment's respite. As well as tea, dear listeners. Victor, did you happen to notice the rather odd decor of the elderly man's makeshift cabin. I did indeed, projectionist. It would appear that it's made up of circus wagons. And while not specifically pointed out, I think we're supposed to realize that the blind man is part of that carnival that the director mentioned earlier in the episode. After pouring Harold a cup of tea, the blind man touches his hands, reacting in fear at the bandages. But he continues to feel the stranger until his fingers cross those prosthetic teeth. At that point, the blind man screams in horror and makes his way further into the remains of the wagons that make up his home, grabbing at an Egyptian amulet around his neck. As he reaches the back, we see there is an honest-to-goodness sarcophagus, and upon opening it, it reveals Ra Amin Ka, 
who is absolutely real and now awake and quite angry. Reaching a hand out towards Harold, it begins to stomp towards him with murderous rage in its eyes. Harold wisely decides that it is time to make himself scarce. Bolting out of the elderly blind man's cabin, where he finds himself stumbling through a nearby cemetery. The immortal Ra Amon Ka, however, is close on his heels. That is, until Harold is able to kick him into a freshly open grave, that is. It turns out that the town of Gridley has a pair of grave robbers, who, besides being scared off by Ra Amenka, manages to leave their motorcycle behind, allowing Harold to jump onto it and drive away, at least for a little bit, before he manages to get stuck in the swamp, crossing paths with the angry mob, led by Willie Joe, who decide the proper way to get rid of the mummy, is by hanging him. Harold attempts as best as he is able to get them to realize he's just an actor in his suit, but to no avail. They tie his hands behind his back, place him upon a horse, and prepare to lynch him. Thankfully for Harold, the noose isn't tightened, because when Willie Joe slaps the horse to get it to run, it just slips right off of him. Although, the mob believe it's a sign of his supernatural abilities. Harold is able to ride the horse all the way to the hospital, with the mob close behind. In fact, as he is searching for his wife, a security guard almost forces him outside of the hospital and into the waiting arms of said mob. But fortunately, Harold's wife is rolled out and she calls to him. It turns out that they have a healthy baby girl. Willie Joe, Jubal, and Ezra comically look on from the front doors of the hospital, remarking that the mummy is a daddy. While I'm sure that eventually it would be explained to the townsfolk that Harold was merely an actor, a relief to them no doubt, considering they nearly slew him multiple times. This is not the end of the episode. As we leave the happy mother and father with their newborn daughter, we see that Ra Amon Ka has managed to make his way to the film set. The director, not realizing that this is not Harold, orders the cameras to begin rolling once more, capturing the scene and wrapping the picture as the episode ends. The director begins to unwrap the bandages of the immortal mummy. And it sounds to me as if the growls of Ra Amon Ka begin to increase. I agree, Projectionist. From the story that the director told at the beginning of the episode, Ra Amon Ka might have been getting ready to go on a rampage as the scene fades to black. Or, since Mummy Daddy is a comedy, perhaps the director would have ended up destroying the ancient evil after pulling off the bandages. Either way, he was about to get a scare no matter what. Dear listeners, you might be interested to know that it is rumored that Mummy Daddy was inspired by a possible true story. How so, man? It has been said that Boris Karloff, while filming 1938's Son of Frankenstein, received word that his wife, Dorothy Stein, had gone into labor. As far as I'm aware, though, 
he was driven to the hospital, although still in full Frankenstein's monster makeup for the birth of his daughter, Sarah Karloff. This was upon November 23rd, in fact, a date of some importance, as that is also Boris Karloff's birthday. Well, that is an awesome bit of trivia I was not aware of, my friend. Let's see if I can stump you. Do you know who worked on the music for Mummy Daddy? I will admit I do not, dear boy. It was Steve Bartek, who has worked on the scores of the likes of Weird Science and Tales from the Crypt, to name just a few, as well as a young musician named Danny Elfman. And friends, I think that about wraps up this episode of the Saturday Frights podcast. I want to thank John Powers again for the excellent suggestion of tackling Mummy Daddy. And as always, I want to thank you for taking the time out of your busy schedule to listen to the show. Originally, we were going to have a special episode for you, but this is now going to be after our next show. The musical clue at the end of the Birds podcast might give you a hint on what we'll be talking about. The music you heard at the beginning and ending of our podcast was provided by Peachy. Peachy's on Twitter, by the way. Peachy Pixel 8. My co-host, The Projectionist, has retired his own Facebook page. But he manages to share interesting trivia on films on nearly a daily basis on the Saturday Frights Facebook page now. As well as Rockford J. I couldn't keep a lid on the vault without his hard work. As for myself, you can still find me posting on not just that page, but the Diary of an Arcade Employee page, and of course on the Pop Culture Retrorama site too. Saturday Frights has an Instagram account, by the way. If you want to check it out, you can find it. It's simply Saturday underscore Frights. If you'd like to contact me with suggestions for future episodes, you can reach me at VicSagePopCulture at gmail.com. Of course, we owe a great deal of gratitude to the RetroWest, not just for originally hosting this podcast, but for allowing us for nearly 10 years to share our love of all things retro. If you do like the show, consider subscribing and giving us a rating over on iTunes. Our past catalog of episodes are slowly coming back online, but you can still listen to the entire collection over on the Internet Archive. We are also available on Google Podcasts and Spotify, as well as Stitcher. This has been a Pop Culture Retrorama podcast. Goodbye, and thanks for listening. The Saturday Frights podcast is not affiliated with or authorized by any of the businesses or individuals that have been mentioned in the show. All music and sound clips are the property of the respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended. Audio clips are included for the purpose of review criticism and commentary only and are not intended to infringe don't sneer at the mysteries of the deep